Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Welcome to episode one of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I am Kirsten Moat. And we are your co-hosts today. In today's episode, we're going to go through 10 steps to planning for connected and autonomous vehicles, also known as driverless cars. Before we get into our 10 steps, though, Kirsten's going to do some background and talk about why this is important and what we can do as planners and in the transportation industry. So, Kelly, I know you know what the difference is between connected and autonomous vehicles, but I feel like those terms get interchanged quite a bit and become synonymous with one another, and that's really not the case. So, first, I just want to go through what's the difference between a connected vehicle and an autonomous vehicle. So, when you think about autonomous, you think about autonomy and the machine operating without human interference. That is what an autonomous vehicle is. It is one that can operate without any human interference or activity, and it can operate without a human in the vehicle. On the other side, you've got connected vehicles, and connected vehicles are the ones that you're probably going to be a little more familiar with. Uh, There's various levels of connected and autonomous, which we'll get into, but connected vehicles are ones where your vehicle is talking to other vehicles, it's talking to uh, infrastructure that's on the roadway, whether it be a traffic signal um, or maybe a school zone beacon, um, and it's communicating information between the two vehicle or between the vehicle and whatever it's communicating with and relaying that information back to the driver. So we'll get into a little more detail about that in a minute. Uh, but when we're talking about connected vehicles, I mentioned that they can talk to other vehicles and they can talk to infrastructure. This is what's referred to as V2V or vehicle to vehicle and V2I vehicle to infrastructure. And those are the two main communication paths that connected vehicles have. When you talk about it in general, you may see the term V2X, which means it could be to a vehicle or to infrastructure or even to a mobile app. So now that we know the difference between connected and autonomous, let's talk about what the different levels of autonomous or driverless vehicles are. There's a scale out there that is the uh, Automotive Engineer International, or SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers International. And they have a scale that ranges from zero to five. So level zero, no automation. The driver is responsible to do all of the driving. This is every vehicle you've probably ever owned or seen prior to, we'll say, the early 2000s. Then you get into level one, level two, and level three. This is where the driver assistance really progresses. So level one, the vehicle may help you steer. It may help you speed up or slow down like a cruise cruise control on your car where 
you can push the button and it'll go up a mile per hour or two and you can adjust it without hitting the gas pedal. Uh, level two is more partial automation. So this is the automated um, uh, parallel parking that you see in the commercials with those real fancy vehicles. Uh, <laughs> My car has that. <laughs> that's right. She has she has a fancy car. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and then level two and level three can even get into the Teslas. So there's some debate about which level a Tesla is in. But Teslas can drive without vehicle or driver assistance. Uh, they can back out of a garage or a parking space via a mobile app without having to be in the car. So those are probably the highest level auto of automation that you see on the roadway today. From there, it just gets into high automation and full automation. And those are the levels that we really want to talk about today. So... Getting into the timing, and there's a lot of opinions. And Kelly, maybe maybe you have an opinion about how long it's going to take before <laughs> we really start seeing fully autonomous vehicles on the road and in the market. Most think that it could be anywhere from 5 to 15 years. So let's see, it's 2021. So we're talking by 2030, 2035, these could be on the market. And I don't know. What do you think, Kelly? You think that's reasonable? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think that the auto manufacturers are on a, in a race to get there. And um, I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. But I think, you know, five, 10 years from now, probably 2030 is probably a little more accurate. You could definitely see highly autonomous vehicles on the road. Now, what I do think, though, is that they're primarily going to be shared um, for ride hailing and not as much in private ownership. But that's a whole nother topic. And, you know, that's that's a whole nother debate. But but I do think that you'll probably see shared ride hailing first. Yeah, and I mean, I think that you're starting to see this progression towards automation by automating different features in the vehicles every year. Every year, there's a new feature. It's like now mm -hmm. the automated parallel parking is starting to become standard, just like backup cameras. They were they became standard in, I think, 2013, 2014. So they're, I think it's going to be a progression until you have fully autonomous, but but I agree. I think in the next decade, these are going to be on the market. Are you going to see them everywhere? No, probably not. It's going to take quite a while for the vehicle fleet as a whole to change over to this yeah. new technology. But I yeah. do think that they're going to be available. Yeah. And I think I've even seen something somewhere where it's like an average of, I want to say 17 years. I could be wrong. So no one quote me on this. But it takes about 17 years to turn over a fleet. So even once they're on the market, it could be 17 years before you get rid of all the previous fleets. So for, you know, 15 years or something, you might have a mix of highly autonomous and human driven vehicles. And that's the biggest challenge is having them on the road together. That's the kind of the scarier part of it. And what can we do to help make that um, less scary, more safer and and define how we live, work, and play in our regions. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the key. And I think that's where 
cities and counties and states are really trying to wrap their heads around, okay, how do I deal with this issue? We know it's coming. We don't know how quickly it's coming, but how can we prepare for this disruptor? And I mean, that's, that's really mm-hmm. what it is. It's yeah. a disruptor to our, to our transportation network. Mm-hmm. And it's taken a long time to even get to where we are now. So we're going to be talking about all the things that you can do to prepare yourself for this new disruption. But before we get to that, I do just want to talk briefly about some of the implications to the public that may come out of autonomous vehicles. So the number one reason that we're even having a conversation about driverless vehicles is safety. 90% of traffic accidents are due to human error. How many times do you drive and see people texting in their car? Oh, I every day. I see it. Every day. Every day. Every day. I mm-hmm. honk at them. I don't know about you. <laughs> I should start doing that. I, I tell them to put their phone down like their mother. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, it's that distractive driving that causes accidents. It's humans are not really capable of being able, they're not capable of multitasking, no matter what what you may believe about your ability to multitask. I think I can do it great, but you can't. Humans just can't. Yeah. And so there's too many things to focus on as a driver and that the risk for safety just goes up. So the idea between autonomous vehicles is that they can monitor through different systems simultaneously and reduce crashes and increase that safety. Um, There's also the potential that you may see a decrease in private vehicle ownership, which is an interesting topic and maybe one that we can get into later. But you have the auto manufacturers wanting to move, or at least some of them, wanting to move towards autonomous vehicles. But if it decreases private vehicle ownership and they're no longer selling vehicles to individuals, what are they doing to their business model to adjust for that? Totally another question for another day. <laughs> yeah, and I even think some of them are actually building that into their business models where they're manufacturing these vehicles, but then they're also having a some type of shared mobility um, subsidiary or something. I've heard some talks about that where they're actually looking into getting into that as well, recognizing that that could be a possibility. And maybe that's how they make up for some of their cost. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I know that I think Volvo and Porsche, they have some vehicle subscription programs. I looked into one of them. It was a little out of my budget. (laughs) But you could request a vehicle for a certain amount of time, kind of like a zip car or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a car rental. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that that's one thing that, that we're kind of thinking about as planners is decreased vehicle ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that we kind of think about is what does that mean for where people live? If they could be more productive during their commute because they don't have to worry about driving, Will they live further out if they have access to an autonomous vehicle where the where they maybe have a lower cost of living? Maybe. So yeah. those are some things we think about, too. Yeah. And what about parking? You know, so if you have this vehicle fleet that's uh, primarily shared vehicles, do those vehicles need to park? 
Or will they just be running around from pickup to drop off to another pickup to drop off? So what does that, what does that mean for businesses who rely on that parking revenue? Yeah. And then also, like, if they are going to park, do they have to park in the more expensive downtown parking lots that we have that are prime real estate? Or can they park further out and that prime real estate downtown actually ends up getting repurposed into something else? Yeah. So it could really have some land use and zoning impacts as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, We'll probably talk about more of this on our next episode when we get into electric vehicles, but a lot of these autonomous vehicles are moving towards electrification. So what does that mean for Mm. gas stations and dependency on uh, petroleum? Um, Will those still be needed? And, you know, gas tax is an important funding source for transportation. So if we're talking more about electric vehicles are more fees going to be imposed uh, to make up for that lack of uh, tax revenue? So yeah, also yeah. things, also things to consider. Um, you know, what does it mean for driving to jobs? I think we're going to probably talk about this in a couple episodes. This one, and then uh, one we're going to be doing in the future about uh, teleworking and what happens with teleworking post pandemic. Um, I think also, you know, we can think more about how does this uh, impact labor markets? Is there going to be an increase in a need for um, mechanics and automotive technicians? Perhaps these things are getting really complicated. Or are we going to need computer engineers to work on vehicles? Yeah. And then what happens to all the driver jobs, right? Yeah. All yeah. those people that were do, driving for their jobs, whether it's Uber Eats or, you know, shipping or whatever. So it's finding that that balance as well. Yeah. And then, you know, finally, as somebody as a pedestrian or a bicyclist, how does this impact you? You don't know in the future. You won't know necessarily if a driver is behind that wheel or if it's driverless. And quite honestly, you may be safer off if it's driverless. <laughs> it depends if they're multitasking. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, how how do pedestrians and bicyclists feel safe, uh, especially in that transition period where we're going to have a mix of traffic? So all of those things are things that we as transportation planners try to think about uh, when we're planning for the integration of connected and autonomous vehicles. Yeah. I think the the one thing that that gives me pause the most though, Kirsten, is the idea of having these zero occupant cars just driving around congesting up the transportation network, you know, just because it's trying to figure out where does it go next. And so just making sure that there is a place for them to go. And that's something that we as planners can impact. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I've I've heard um, mixed opinions about how these are going to work and if there's zero occupants and how much that is going to uh, increase congestion. On the flip side of that, there have been so many things that have happened in the last year that I'm I'm curious to see if if we still think that autonomous vehicles 
are going to cause so much more congestion that it's going to be an issue. Because I feel like now across the U.S. with people telemarketing, there aren't as many vehicles out there now. So um, I, th- I think, again, there's just a lot of unknowns yeah. that we as planners have to kind of think about um, as, as we're planning for these technologies. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gets me into, okay, what are our roles as transportation planners? You know, we're trying to plan for the future. We're trying to look into some crystal ball and then try to inform and educate people on what's going to happen or what, you know, autonomous vehicles can mean for you and how it's going to impact your community. Um, it's, it's a really challenging position to be in because you want to predict as best as you can with the data that you have, which is all historical and try to project that into the future. Um, but you can't predict the future. So we as planners do the best thing that we think we can do based on the data and input from stakeholders and public um, that we can. So really thinking about visions and goals, thinking about what kind of policies could be implemented so that they're flexible enough for a changing future but provide that guidance that's really going to help cities, counties, states, and the feds um, prepare for and plan for, you know, these changes in technology in a, in a safe way. Um, also thinking about investment decisions. So once we, once we know, okay, here's the direction you need to go to prepare your city um, for emerging technologies and here's how you need to invest your money. You know, there's, that's, that's a big decision. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and understanding what the return on investment is going to be, and it's going to be very different than what your traditional investments have been. If you're investing in traffic signals, you know, that that traffic signal unless it gets damaged, it's going to be around for a while. But when we talk about technology, think about how long you keep a cell phone. How long do you keep your cell phone? Oh, God. Two years max. Max, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you need, you, you need those upgrades in order to stay current and be able to utilize the new 5G that's coming out. Yep. So I think there has to be a shift in the way we think about how we're making investments into our transportation system. Because it is going to be probably more frequent than it has been in the past. So how yeah. do you prepare for that? Yeah, um, and then, you know, also thinking about including everyone in this decision-making process. Uh, so being more inclusive and equitable, and we're going to have a whole episode on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a huge topic right now. Um, and it, it should have been a big topic for a long time, but I think Definitely. really over the last couple of years, it's, yeah. it's yeah. really yeah. picked up some steam, which is, which is for the best. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, there's, there are, there's just so much that goes into thinking about the planning aspect and, and trying to be feasible, trying to be, uh, forward thinking and outside of the box. Like there's, there's really a balance that we have to come to. Yeah. So, um, drum roll, please. 
as yes, thank you, because I can't do. I've never been able to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten steps to planning for connected and autonomous vehicles. Before I get into each step, though, I just want to mention that we're going to be focusing on steps of what you can do as transportation planners. I will let you know that the feds have really um, provided a lot of more recent materials over the last few years as it relates to autonomous vehicles. If you go to the U.S. Department of Transportation's website at www.transportation.gov forward slash AV, that's AV for autonomous vehicles, um, you can find a lot of materials up there, including the recent re- recently released 2021 Autonomous Vehicles Comprehensive Plan. So just wanted to mention that before we get in into the steps and also all links that we mentioned will be in our show notes. So step one, develop a vision for your region. Kirsten mentioned this before, but that is the first thing that I think that we as planners need to do in collaboration with our clients, our communities, our stakeholders, the general public. And I always say develop the vision for your region before someone else does. And what I mean by that is the auto manufacturers, they're moving forward. And so it's going to happen. And if we as planners don't define the vision of how we want our regions to live, work and play and what that looks like as it relates to connecting autonomous vehicles, it's just going to happen. And we're going to try to figure out, well, how did this happen that we have all these robo taxis around with nobody in them? Or, you know, why is everyone moving out so far away and we have all this urban sprawl? You know, if we can develop a vision that can then inform policies going forward that can really help set the stage for how we want our future to look like. And that needs to include an educational component as well, because as Kirsten mentioned at the beginning of the episode, not everybody knows what a connected and autonomous vehicle and the different levels and what that means to us. So that's so important as well too. Yeah. And I just, I just want to add like when you're thinking about a vision Really think through your vision. I feel like so many times I see whatever organization's vision and it's like 50 buzzwords. Yeah. Really, when you like read it, it makes zero sense and it doesn't yeah. provide any context for what they really want to accomplish. So right, yeah. avoid buzzwords. Really think about what you want your community to look like. Yeah, yeah. And again, obviously, that requires a lot of input and engagement from the community as well. So yeah, it's not a day workshop, like we're going to come up with our vision today. Like yeah. it, do- it takes some time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So step two is to incorporate um, that vision into your goals and objectives in what's called a metropolitan transportation plan or Long-range plans. So let me first explain what that is. So there's a an entity called an MPO or a Metropolitan Planning Organization. And those are federally designated areas that represent um, cities and county jurisdictions that fall within that area that meet certain population thresholds. So in those urban areas, the MPO is the planning arm and the cities and the counties are partners in that and they provide their needs often and incorporate it into the MPO's Metropolitan Transportation Plan 
or MTP. That is the federal term that's used. You might also hear long-range transportation plan or regional transportation plan. But that is required of every MPO every four to five years, dependent upon whether or not they have air quality problems. And in that plan, they include the vision goals and objectives for the region, as well as what the current um, conditions are for transportation, what the needs are going forward, what the future looks like. Projects are then evaluated after being identified and then prioritized and some of them are funded because there's never enough money for funding. And those plans actually look out at least 20 years, if not further. So most of the plans these days are for the year 2050. Well, that's almost 30 years from now. And what I do feel comfortable saying is that there will be highly autonomous vehicles on the road then. And it's just a matter of how many, how much market penetration there is. Is it 30% of all the vehicles on the road? Is it more? What is it? Right? So incorporate that vision into the goals and objectives um, as it relates to connecting autonomous vehicles and include that in your MTP. And some of those goals and objectives could, for instance, refer to safety um, as it relates to connecting autonomous vehicles, as well as being an economically competitive region. What you don't want to happen is to be left behind and all your other regions um, that you're competing against for um, economic opportunities, whether it's companies coming and, and re, you know, locating in your region and creating jobs. Um, if you are not up with the times, you know, they're going to go to another area that has a uh, more sophisticated transportation infrastructure. So that's step two. Step three is understand and partner with regional nearby initiatives. So what we're trying to say here is that you don't know what you don't know. So everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, there are a lot of folks that are doing some really cool things, but other folks just don't know about it. And until you start talking to each other, um, you could be working in a vacuum and planning something that could be leveraged with what someone else is doing or could be contradictory to and not, you know, work well with their system or what we call interoperable. So we want to make sure that we're talking to other agencies and partners nearby, such as transit operators or, you know, the Department of Transportation, your EMS services, um, you know, the emergency medical services, whether it's the police department, the fire department, you know, the hospitals or whatever, and make sure you're coordinating with them. And, you know, we have a really good example of where we did that and it far exceeded our expectations for one of the smart corridor studies we did a year or two ago. Kirsten, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, this corridor has spanned three cities um, and the cities were responsible for their own traffic signals. And so there really wasn't a reason for them to coordinate with one another on, you know, their signal maintenance. Um, but the issue was that if you drive the entire corridor, there were some real issues with the signal timing. Uh, and so the flow of traffic really wasn't efficient. Um, so through this process, through this study process, we coordinated between the three cities and the DOT, 
and found that the DOT actually had an initiative going on to upgrade signals uh, with some new software and hardware, uh, new communication protocols, uh, some mobile app features where um, uh, signal technicians could be alerted if there were any issues, maintenance issues uh, going on at, at the location. Um, so in doing this, we were actually able to get the cities to talk to the DOT, upgrade all of their signals on this corridor with this new technology, and the DOT was gracious enough to upgrade a couple of the cabinets and do a new signal timing and phasing plan for the corridor. And it cut down several seconds of delay just doing the retiming. And now those cities are fully trained on being able to maintain their traffic signals uh, with this new software and can use the app. And it just provided such a more efficient network. I know. And you know what was also really cool about that, Kirsten, what I was so excited about was not only did the DOT upgrade that two-mile corridor? But just from the cities coming to them and asking, they actually upgraded the software for all the traffic signals in all three, the entirety of all three of those jurisdictions. Not even just the ones that the city or that the state owned and maintained, but also the ones owned and operated and maintained by the cities. That was a huge deal. And the DOT was like, all you got to do is ask, you know. And so it was so amazing that the DOT did that at their cost. They didn't charge anything to the cities either. So that was awesome. But you never know unless you go ask and find out what's going on, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I will say also, I found this handy dandy, uh, dashboard that I think probably doesn't have everything under the sun, but is definitely a good starting a point. So, uh, NHTSA, which is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they have what's called their Automated Vehicle Transparency and Engagement for Safe Testing Initiative or TEST. And they have an AV tracking tool. And you can find that at www.nhtsa.gov forward slash automated hyphen vehicles hyphen safety forward slash AV hyphen test hyphen initiative hyphen tracking hyphen tool. You can find that in our show notes. I know. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I know. If I had just put you through to NHTSA, it would have been hard to find. I tried to just do it that way, but it wasn't real obvious. So I wanted to make sure you guys had the whole path. And again, this will be in our show notes. Okay, step four, conduct a technology inventory to understand what you already have. So know what you have. So we've done this quite a bit. Sometimes it's easier said than done. Um, But the type of data that you want to collect is uh, what type of traffic signal you have. Is it, you know, outdated or is it new as far as the hardware is concerned? Does it have the the latest software uh, to that enables the ability to communicate with other signals. So that's back to that V to V to I that Kirsten talked about earlier, vehicle to infrastructure. So can it communicate with other signals and back to the transportation management center, uh, which think of, think of like a command center, kind of like uh, what is it? 
um, you know, like a NASA command center. Think about that, but it's for transportation where you have this full of screens and they're monitoring everything going on. Can it communicate back to that? Um, and does it have CV applications or connected vehicle applications already enabled, like transit signal priority, um, you know, uh, traffic signal preemption for emergency vehicles, et cetera. So uh, the other thing is, is the, the thing that can get complicated is that, as we mentioned earlier with that smart corridor example, is that different cities um, or different traffic signals are owned by different cities or the state. And so the state usually has a pretty good inventory of what they have, but not every city always has a good inventory of what they have, let alone the specifics of each location. So get what you can, um, and you may have to go out and take a look for yourself if you have a smaller area. Uh, step five is to designate a smart corridor network. So we've done this um, on a couple occasions now, and we, we recommend this because a lot of times we see different smart corridor studies or designations, but it wasn't done collectively as a network. And it was more of kind of done, I don't want to say willy nilly, but sometimes they seem to be, you know, it's a good corridor. Uh, it may be done designated for economic reasons or whatever. And it doesn't take away from whether or not it should be designated as a smart corridor. But if we proactively look at a smart corridor network and designate that, there's so many more things you can do. And so what we've done in some areas is designate a smart corridor network based off of all that data we just collected in the inventory. And then figure out where there's some low-hanging fruit opportunities along certain corridors. And do we want to focus, say, certain corridors for freight and economic movement or certain corridors for, you know, livability, like bikes, pedestrian, and transit, for instance? And then what kind of smart technology projects would we recommend to address those uses along those corridors? Uh, so we'd really target the technology solutions for what those corridors were intended to serve. And I'll just mention that, you know, I think ultimately the goal is that the entire city or county or state or whatever will be outfitted with the technology for connected and autonomous vehicles. But this is that starting point. Yeah. And designating these corridor networks, especially for different uses, allows you the opportunity to test some different technologies. Yeah. Um, and you want to make sure that you're looking at corridors that are going to give you an ample amount of data. So, you know, residential streets where you're just not going to have a lot of traffic, probably not the best option to include in your network. But a residential road that has a school zone on it, that might be you know, something where you want to test some technologies to um, communicate school speed zones um, uh, through the connected vehicle applications um, might be beneficial. Yeah. And that's a perfect, that's great. And, and another idea is like, 
Okay, testing out transit signal priority on bus routes, you know, or uh, emergency vehicle preemption at traffic signals near hospitals for ambulances or near fire stations for fire trucks, stuff like that. So um, you might also, if you have a smart corridor network identified, say you're a metropolitan planning organization and you've identified a smart corridor network, you could even consider issuing a smart corridor grant program for your uh, partners and they could apply for either studies or implementation dollars to implement some technology strategies along those designated corridors. So just something to think about. Step six is to identify connected vehicle projects for evaluation. So we've already mentioned a few of them, whether it's signal priorities to give uh, more green time for for buses, and you may even consider truck signal priority or freight signal priority for trucks making deliveries really late at night or really early in the morning during the off-peak to incentivize them to use those corridors off-peak as opposed to during peak period congestion. Uh, There's even technologies that can be installed near signals, near at-grade train crossings that provide some prediction capabilities um, and can communicate to, say, a variable message sign on the side of the road to let people know there's a train crossing soon and it's going to be crossing for X minutes and you may want to detour or whatever. And something that may be longer term but could be considered or evaluated is even having dedicated lanes for connected vehicles on the interstate. So just like you have, you know, high occupant vehicle lanes or HOV lanes, is there the potential to evaluate connected vehicle or excuse me, connected and autonomous vehicle lanes Um, especially when you have mixed traffic, like we talked about earlier. Uh, So trying to isolate those driverless cars from those human-driven cars. Uh, There is a long list of different connected vehicle applications on the USDOT website. If you go to the USDOT National Operations Centers of Excellence, you can find a menu of strategies at transportationopsops.org. And that is under their Connected Fleet Challenge CV applications. Um, And then if you go to USDOT, their ITS, Intelligent Transportation Systems Joint Program Office, they also have similar information, www.itsdot.gov forward slash pilots forward slash CV underscore pilot underscore apps dot htm. Again, those lengthy website links will be in our show notes. Yeah, and I think those are a great resource uh, because I think when we talk about connected vehicles, a lot of people, if you're somewhat familiar with connected vehicle uh, technologies, think mostly about signal priority and preemption. But there actually are a lot of different applications that could be useful for a lot of different uh, communities. Yeah, I'd say there was 30 or 40 on there. And I know that when we've done similar things and developed menus of strategies, there's usually about 40 or so on there. And then you start narrowing down what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What goals are you trying to accomplish? Um, step seven is develop what-if scenarios or what we call alternate futures. So, for instance, what if autonomous vehicles were a certain percentage of the market share in 2050? I mentioned earlier, what if it's 30%? What if it's 50% of the cars on the road are highly autonomous? How would that impact land use, travel patterns, You know, the idea is that with autonomous vehicles, once they're 
all autonomous vehicles in that lane, they can go at higher speeds and require uh, narrower lanes, which means that you can fit more cars on the road. So you have more capacity. Um, Do the types of trips that people make change and do they change by time of day? Uh, does the mode of travel that they use change? How How is the funding revenue impacted? Because as Kirsten mentioned earlier, autonomous vehicles will be mostly electrified. And right now we're getting our revenue streams from the motor fuel tax. So how does that change? Uh, so those are different things that we could consider in these alternate futures. And then look at projects that could address those alternate futures, but also some of your current needs or status quo needs. And then there are there transportation projects that score high regardless of which scenario. And perhaps those are the ones that you should focus on investing. And that leads to step eight, which is incorporate evaluation criteria for prioritizing transportation investments. So, you know, when we prioritize transportation investments in the long-range plan, um, and in this example, I'll use the Metropolitan Transportation Plan, we go through an extensive evaluation of projects and they get scored. And there's different evaluation criteria that go into that scoring. So some of these criteria, which um, are tailored to each plan based on the vision goals and objectives of that region, Um, Some of them may include, you know, related to safety that would be impacted by connected autonomous vehicles, economic competitiveness, competitiveness. We talked about that earlier. Cost effectiveness. Some of these connected vehicle applications are pretty low hanging fruit um, and can have a lot of impact. And then just readiness. How quickly can they get um, deployed? Uh, Some of these technology strategies are a lot faster to implement than, say, widening a road. And they're also a lot cheaper. And then step nine is prioritize investments that would be necessary regardless of when autonomous vehicles penetrate the market. And I had mentioned that just recently. So perhaps, you know, resurfacing or pavement markings on the road, you're going to need those. You're going to need good roads in good condition, regardless of whether or not a human is driving the vehicle. Um, making sure that you have that ability for traffic signals to communicate with one another and back to the traffic management center, that's a good foundation. Uh, thinking about loading zones, whether, again, whether or not someone's in the car driving or not is important. Um, and then, you know, we talked earlier about bike um, cyclists and pedestrians. Um, you know, perhaps we need more sidewalks to separate them from the driverless cars and more bus stop amenities um, to separate folks from uh, riding the bus from driverless cars and, and just making it more of a increased rider experience, regardless of whether or not connect and autonomous vehicles fully penetrate the market. Step 10, develop and implement supporting policies. So we talked earlier about the robocars or zombie cars. I've heard them called all sorts of things, but these zero occupant vehicles. So there are policies that we as planners can recommend to include in a city jurisdiction or a county um, or a sub area. You know, maybe it's requiring zero occupant cars to park in areas that aren't prime real estate, like we talked about earlier. Uh, maybe they're not going to be allowed to park on on the curb, you know, on street parking. Maybe they need to be parked elsewhere. So there is 
um, room for people that are actually physically driving the car so they can get that prime parking uh, street side so or on street. So just one example. But so that would be step 10. So just to recap the 10 steps. Step one, develop a vision for your region. Step two, incorporate the vision into your goals and objectives and incorporate them into your metropolitan transportation plan or your long range plan. Step three, understand and partner with regional and nearby initiatives. Step four, conduct technology inventory to understand what you already have. Step five, designate a smart corridor network. Step six, identify connected vehicle projects for evaluation. Step seven, develop what-if scenarios or alternate futures. Step eight, incorporate evaluation criteria for prioritizing transportation investments. Step nine, prioritize investments that would be necessary regardless of when autonomous vehicles penetrate the market. And step 10, develop and implement supporting policies. So what do you think, Kirsten? Do you think that gives folks a good starting point? Yeah, I mean, I do. It's there. There's several steps involved, but yeah, we've we've detailed it out uh, pretty well. So um, I don't know, Kelly. Which which one of these steps do you think might be the most challenging for somebody to accomplish? Ah, oh, geez. Let's see here. I think um, the technology inventory step four. I think can be very challenging just because, like I said earlier, you've got different data sets being maintained by different jurisdictions and with different level of detail. And so, you know, I think if you aren't able to get much data, at least hopefully you can get all the traffic signals on state routes. But I would say that's the most challenging. And it begs the the question or the need for cities to recommend to your your partners and stakeholders in your cities to maybe ramp up their data collection activities of these traffic signals and make sure they do know where they're at and have them mapped. Um, and perhaps that's something that they could do later. But yeah, I think that's going to be the most difficult, but it's certainly doable at different levels. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it does take some field work, kind of going out, really understanding what you have and having those experts out there with you, uh, like your traffic signal technicians and your traffic engineers. Yeah. Um, I also think that one of the most important steps is developing supporting policies. Yeah. Uh, I think that's going to be key to that interoperability um, to Garnering leadership support, especially elected leaders who change every so often. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just maintains a level of consistency um, between your leaderships as as they may change. Yeah, I agree. Good points. So we're going to close now. Uh, We want to thank you for tuning in and checking out um, our podcast We encourage you to check out our next episode, Eight Steps to Planning for Electric Vehicles. I think that one's going to be a really good one and very timely. And hopefully you'll find your time well spent. Um, 
at some point. We'd like to start interviewing folks that have done some innovative stuff and address some of these challenges that we've been talking about. So if you're interested, let us know. You can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget, we'd like for you to subscribe to our podcast and even better, review our podcast. You can find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And with that, over and out. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.